0: A man that many of us might know by name, but Hezekiah was a king in Judah. If you don't understand the difference between being a king in Israel and being a king in Judah. There are two different ways to be a king of Israel. You could be one of the three kings that were the king over Israel when Israel was all together. Everything that Moses had known, those people, those 12 tribes that Joshua had led, those people became a nation of their own. You called them Israel after Jacob who was renamed Israel and his sons sort of developed into this this united body, the, the land of Israel. And so you had King Saul and king david and king solomon but after solomon things split and the civil war that took place in that country created a new kingdom of israel many of the tribes in the north kind of split off onto their own into their time of rebellion and idolatry but down in the south there were some faithful times we've talked about this before But over the up and down legacy of the kings that were over the southern tribes, the kingdom of Judah, there was this king, Hezekiah. Before Hezekiah, there was a king named Ahaz, and he was a mess. He was basically like all the kings in the north. He led everybody away from following God because it seemed more politically expedient to follow idols like all those around him, sometimes to curry political favor, sometimes to be able to get military strength, sometimes to just think like a pagan and think that if I sacrifice to an idol, my life is going to go better. Uh, it, was, it was just a mess of a time during Ahaz's reign. But then Hezekiah comes. Listen, listen to his story. It says, and if you've read through kings, you know that oftentimes they'll tell you the landmarks of one king's reign by talking about what's going on in the other king's reign in the corresponding kingdom. So it begins, in the third year of Hosea, king of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Got our little time frame down? He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. And you pick that up, that nuance of talking about godly kings. They would often just bypass all the ungodliness in somebody and say, this guy followed God like his dad, not really dad, more ancestor, David had done. Because we had Saul, and we had Solomon, and both of those were a little bit of a mixed bag. But David's the one guy we look to during that united reign. And, and Hezekiah is reigning in the, the strength and the mindset of David. Listen to what he did. He removed the high places, and broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory from watchtower to fortified city. What a great legacy of a king. Now we're going to get back to him at the very end. But I want you to kind of put yourself in Hezekiah's place. The political cost that Hezekiah would bear in rebelling against the ways of his dad and the whole political machine that his dad had made of idolatry was incredibly steep for Hezekiah. It would have taken incredible courage and fortitude to follow Jesus, to follow God, sorry. It would have taken great strength to move ahead and, and break from tradition, especially his dad's tradition, and try to live a different way. Many of you might feel that even in your own family history. You understand what it's like to follow Jesus, and you realize that you've had to rebel against a lot of things that you learned, a lot of the ways your family may currently live, and you, you can kind of resonate with Hezekiah, this sense of, well, I want to follow Jesus, and it costs me a lot to follow Jesus. Now, everything about that is good. Absolutely everything about that is good. And in some ways, the way that we've been in this wisdom series, it really, proverb, it really follows what we saw in Wisdom 101 from the book of Proverbs, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and if you do, life will go well. And there's a bunch of nuanced ways of saying that. In the ways that you speak, you can trust the Lord. It means you don't lie. It means you don't gossip. It means you don't backbite and slander. Even though it might benefit you to do that, you choose not to do that because you fear the Lord. And what will happen according to Proverbs? Things will go well for you. Use your time and your money and your words, your wealth. Make sure you you go to school and go to work and just sort of build your life according to the foundational principles of wisdom. And what will happen? It will go well. And then comes Wisdom 201, the book of Ecclesiastes where we have to add generally to that phrase. It will go well, generally, in principle. That's the pattern of life. But Ecclesiastes takes all this time and says, what about the exceptions? What about all the ways that the fastest person doesn't win the race? The strongest army doesn't wins the, win the battle. It seems as though life looks one way. It appears a certain way. It feels as though God owes the Hezekiahs of this world for faithfully following God. And yet sometimes when you grasp hold of it, it's like smoke. That's the word from Ecclesiastes. Vanity, meaningless, the heaviness, the vapors and the vanities of life mean that you can't trust the principles of Proverbs to be promises from God. And when we demand that principles become promises, life gets massively disappointing. And in fact, it would not be wise to live as though living a certain way according to some principles would guarantee things and make us feel entitled to good things from God. And so that's what we saw through the book of Ecclesiastes. Time is a real factor in life. Death is, is the real end of life. And both of those are incredibly forgetful. All your righteousness, all your faithfulness, people will forget you. And if you're not comfortable with that, you're not going to live wisely. If you think you are going to build something that will endure forever, then you misunderstand the potency we have in this world. Chance has its way with us. There's a certain sense that injustice still reigns over this world, and we took time to kind of explore those things. If you're kind of new to us and you're, you're wondering a little bit about it, head to the website. You'll find those things on YouTube, and you can kind of walk with us through that. What we're entering in the book of Job, I wanted to delay one week because we had the kids with us last Sunday. And the idea of unpacking a story where God decides that these seven boys and three girls are all going to meet their brutal end just didn't seem like the thing I wanted to do on a fifth Sunday. Hey, kids, welcome in. Let's talk about your death. (laughs) So we're not going to do that. Um, So we're not going to take Job, though, in four weeks. We're going to take it in three. We're going to truncate our two two middle. But we are going to take this morning to try and understand this book, the book of Job. All right. Now. We pronounce some words some ways, and Jenna, I think I'd have pronounced "us" the way you pronounced "us," but it is possible that that could have been actually the word "ooze." And "job" is "job," and it looks like "job," and it's just there's just so many moments we get into this book and we realize this was not written to us. This was not written for English speakers. And one of the main things that's going to come up isn't so much how you pronounce one word or another or something like that. It's the role that Satan has and really whether or not his name ought to be capitalized. We'll get to that in just a minute. But let's, let's start this book and kind of feel it the way that it's intended to come to us. All right. And so we start. Wisdom 301, the field study, the question of what does wisdom not look like in the classroom? What does it look like on the ground to actually be wise, to live righteously and experience something differently? What would that be? And so we open up the pages of Job chapter 1, verse 1, and we read, there was a man. It's an odd way to start a book, isn't it? It's kind of like in the beginning, God We're just sort of knowing something about him. But there's not much for us to really know about Job. Oftentimes, if we're going to read one of the prophets, right? Or if we would read anything written by Paul or Peter, we could just go to other places in the Bible and we can find out tons of stuff about Paul. Tons of stuff about Peter. We could, if we're going to learn something about a particular prophet, usually it would be introduced. And we'd know something about this person, who they were, or what their occupation was, or who they were ministering to. We get none of that in the very beginning. There was a man in the land of Uz. Which is not in Israel, just so you know. It's in probably one of the surrounding little neighborhoods around Israel, one of the surrounding countries. It's not far, far away. But it's far enough away that what we realize is we're not dealing with somebody related to Abraham nor to Jacob. We're not dealing with one of the covenant people of God. This is kind of a, there was a man. He sounds like an everyday man. Yep. He was living in an everyday kind of country. We don't know much more about it. The the name of this land is only mentioned two other times in the Bible, really, whose name was Job. That's what we get. There was a man in the land of us, whose name was Job. To me, it almost feels like it should look like this. And we need a theme song for this. The introduction to Star Wars, right? <laughs> Once upon a time in a land far, far away. Because the question that we get in the book of Job has to do with whether or not this is an historical person. If you read Homer, the Iliad and the Odyssey, you would read some pretty dense language. It's clear this is a poem. It's clear the poem has a point. And it's clear the poem and the point are trying to broadly and, and really articulately kind of get you into the whole narrative of things. This in scripture is a little bit almost like Shakespeare was writing. There's something about the book of Job that comes at things from a very literary perspective. Now, we read that in, in James, right? Where James references, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. That's a, a moment, biblically speaking, where we'd think, okay, it's probably a historical character. Whether he's historical or whether fictional is really not going to mess too much with our sense of this being inspired. This is from God. The if this is a historical guy, we have to at least recognize this. It would have been very difficult to get down 37 verbatim chapters of what happens when Job is talking to his buddies. This is, I, I've, I've never remembered a conversation like that in my entire life. And so as we read the book of Job, we have to recognize the author of this intends it to be incredibly literary, intends it to be incredibly dense literarily, and it's intended in a poetic sense to really drive home a point over and over and over again. There's something similar to this, to the type of kind of literary work we needed to do when we opened up the book of Revelation. Remember when we were in Revelation together, I was saying if we just take this and take everything from a, just a purely physical perspective, then it's going it's to be really tough to kind of get through this book. We've got to recognize what we're reading. Job has a very similar dynamic to it. We don't get a sense of who wrote it, it remains anonymous. We really have a tough time knowing when it was written. It doesn't reference anything with Israel's kind of history, so we get no, no context to be able to put it in, right? Is it this temple, or is it a tabernacle, or is, were the sacrifices or the law initiated? None of that sort of sits there. This is somebody outside of Israel's domain, and so it really doesn't fit Israel's timeline. So we, we just don't know when. It's an ancient poem written self-consciously to say, I know I'm writing some pretty heady stuff to you and it's going to intend to represent the best of that day's thinking about where suffering and evil and all those kinds of things come from. In other words, if we were looking at Ecclesiastes and asking, Okay, in the midst of injustice and time and death and the forgetfulness of this world and the wildness and unpredictability of things and the randomness of chance, how do we live? Job kind of comes from a different perspective. It's going to address all those same things, but it's going to ask, what kind of a God do we have in the middle of that? That, at the end of the day, is the real focus of the book of Job. So what that means is, and I'm going to use another reference here, Many of the times when we look at parables, I've often told you, you got to get the point of the parable and not get distracted by the details, right? Parable of the sower and the seed, right? Has nothing to do with the sower. Sorry, he's in there. But do we hear a lot about the sower, what he does? Should we make a lot of applicable points about the sower? No, because the sower is just there sowing seed. That's what he does. He's kind of the context of it. But the focus of it is on not the seed itself either, right? It's actually on the soils. It's a parable about four soils. So what do we do? We pay attention to the soil. Job is very, very similar because this story we're about to encounter today feels like a really weird way for us to try and then use it as a reference point for how Satan works in the world, how our enemy and our adversary is being able to sort of engage us. In other words, what we're about to read feels really weird. And it would be something we would say, that is the way the world works if we had other pages of scripture that seem to indicate that that's the way the world works. But we don't have that. So I just want us to sort of take our hands off of some parts of this story. We're going to hear it the way it was written to us. So it's coming in a land far, far away, a long, long time ago. A tale is to be told to us, historical or fictional. We are still reading inspired scripture from an anonymous author written in an unknown time that is as relevant today because the one who inspired it is going to open up its pages for us. Make sense? All right. I know that when we get into books together, some of you are going to go and you're, you're going to Google some things. And what I don't want is any of your confidence to be undermined. Pastor, did you know that? Yep, I knew. It's okay. We've got the pages of reliable scripture right here before us. And the good news is, we can dive into this and we can see that this man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, was, and here's our first point. Here's the first thing we're going to see about him is Job's blameless track record, all right? Job, in this sense, has a track record that is unquestionably blameless. Now, that is unbelievably important because next week we're going to hear a whole mess of people challenge that blamelessness, all right? Now, blameless is a, is a tricky word. It doesn't mean perfect. It, it, it just doesn't, all right? Blameless has been used a couple other times, more so when we read it in Genesis. We read that, that in Genesis, Noah was blameless. We read that, that in Genesis, Abraham was called to walk before the Lord and be blameless. So that, that sense of blamelessness that's there, it's we read that right about Job here in 1 chapter 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, One who feared God and turned away from evil. And if all of that sounds familiar, that's good. It's intentional. In other words, here we have a human being doing everything from the book of Proverbs and doing it in a blameless and a righteous way. Everything we've heard that you should do in the book of Proverbs, he's fearing God. He's turning away from evil. He's using his speech and his money and his time the right way. He's thinking about things, and guess how well it's working. It's working great for him. Look at verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels. And if those numbers look a little odd to you. It's not just because it's just a perfect record of how many he had. It's a picture as well for how complete his life is. Sevens matter. Threes Matter. There's a certain sense that the, the tens that are in here, the 500 yoke of oxen, the 500 female donkeys, very many servants. So that we could summarize this guy, both in terms of his abundance and his prosperity and in terms of his character and the way that he lives his life. This man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Have you gotten to know Job in a pretty good way? You'd like this guy. You'd admire this guy. He's a good dude and if you're questioning whether or not that is just sort of broad scope kind of stuff, listen to how detailed it gets in his life. Verse 4 His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them and when the days of the feast had run their course Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all for Job said it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. What a dad. It's not just that his kids represent some sort of, you know, material blessing, that they're like a status symbol for him. They kind of are. But beyond that, he cares for them. He loves them. He takes care of them. And he's worried that even though he doesn't know specifically what might have happened in his kids' lives, he says there's a hypothetical possibility that when they were partying last night, one of them really got in trouble with God. And so I'm going to do what I can to say, God, could you please overlook them? He's a good guy. This is a really good guy on broad scale ways and in the minutia of life. He did this continually. You ever tell stories about your life and people are asking, how are things going? And you're trying to recount like, okay, what are the best stories I can tell right now that would paint me in kind of the best way? And if they asked for some of the details, you'd be like, well, that only happened twice, but you know, I was trying to pretend that it happened. Like, that's not Job. If you say, Job, tell me a little bit about your dad and he wouldn't have to skip over all these bad things. He's going to tell you what he's continually doing in order to care for his family, for his kids, for his entire household. He is the greatest man in the East, and he is continually among the greatest people in the East. Job has a blameless track record. That's what we know, all right? For the next three weeks, this one, two more, we have to keep that in mind. Because if we make the mistake of thinking that all that was a lie or all that was just sort of a veneer, we're going to miss the point, all right? Here's what we hear, though. What we hear is that Job's faith foundation is legitimately challenged. This is where it gets a little tricky, so listen in. Now, there was a day, verse 6, when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And hmm, here's the one that also gets a little hard. In all of our translations, the next word that we read is Satan. Capital S, Satan. You know who this is, right? From the snake in the beginning to the snake in the end, that's the one we're talking about. Here's the problem that's not the way it's written. It's not written to say this is the name of an individual. What it's written as is actually as a title. Let me give you another example. What's the first name of our Savior? Jesus. What's the last name of our Savior? It's not Christ. All right. We want to say Christ, right? Because we think of him as Jesus Christ. But Christ isn't the last name, right? It would have been probably Jesus bar Joseph, Jesus son of Joseph. That may have been the way that he was known. Jesus Christ is actually a title. Title is Messiah. Jesus the Savior. Jesus the one who would come to redeem. Jesus the one who was anointed for this task. So, so when we think of some words in Scripture, we use them often as names, but what we have to remember is very, very many times that those are actually titles, and this is one of those. That's, that's the tricky thing that we have to kind of understand or else we're going to miss the next part of it. Because if the next part of the story is, here's a guy who is just by the wickedest worst person you could possibly ever imagine, falsely accused of all these things, and oh my gosh, what do we do whenever Satan, the horrible wicked dragon, comes and just brings all these false accusations, well then, it kind of creates a straw man for the entire book of Job. As though we really shouldn't wrestle with this question that the Satan is actually using. Because Satan, like I said, isn't a proper name, it's a title. Now, We've probably heard this, that Satan's name or the title of the Satan or, again, how do you pronounce these things, the Satan, is an adversary or an accuser. It's kind of a courtroom title. It's not just a courtroom title. But at one spot in, in the Bible, the angel of the Lord is actually called the Satan. You're thinking, what? The angel of the Lord is called Satan? No, he's not. It's not as though the two of them are put together. It's saying that the angel of the Lord actually came to oppose someone. The angel of the Lord in that moment came as an adversary, one who is sort of standing up against another one. And it's just a description because that's what a Satan would do. A Satan would, uh, would be an adversary, an accuser in a courtroom setting, but one who opposes kind of in another setting. All right? So understand the word for what just what the word is. Again, I'm not trying to say that these things don't relate all the way out, but let's just walk slowly into the book and understand this, that when this character comes up, we're meeting somebody that in this particular context is doing something that would be done in a courtroom. Now, in a courtroom that we might think of, or kind of in a king's room that we might think of, right? We, you might think kind of more medieval, like, oh, where's the court jester, and where's this guy, and where are the knights, and where are the nobles? And uh, What we're seeing in this particular ancient setting is one who stands as the unchallenged authority, God, and yet there's others on his kind of team that come together let's let's see how this lays itself out there was a day when the sons of god and that's one of the titles these angelic beings that are coming before into the courtroom of God. They're coming to present themselves before the Lord and the accuser, the adversary also came among them. And the Lord said to now from here on out, just having given you all that, all right, I'm going to read it as it is. All right. I'm going to read it as Satan. All right. Just understand the stuff that I've just said about it. I don't want to keep throwing in a the, um, we're just going to read it as it's written, but understand kind of where we're at. All right. So, Uh, The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So if we're questioning the righteousness of Job, just understand we've heard it from the narrator, right? We've heard it from the author, and now we've heard it from God himself. Job is blameless. He turns away from evil, he's a good dude. You want to be like this guy. This is the epitome of wisdom. Maybe also in one way, just like we said in Ecclesiastes, it's almost written with this collective narrative using Solomon's voice, but also asking like, what if, what if the kings of Judah had never turned away from God? What would that look like at the end of their days? Book of Ecclesiastes. It's almost as though you could ask, what if a human being had never failed? What if Adam, the blameless one, Never turned, never rebelled, never sinned. What would that look like? Job. That's the sense we should get of this guy. This is like a guy who's done things right. This is like a guy who's still in this state of being blameless, upright, fearing God, shunning evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all he has and he will curse you to his face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. See what's happened? All the angelic beings get together in the courtroom of God before the Lord, and they're asked, and they're kind of presenting themselves to God. The adversary, the Satan, comes forward, and and God says, "Where you been? I'm walking around the earth." Yeah, <laughs> check out Job. Let me pose a question to you. Why else would he do anything but serve you? Every time you you bless, every time he serves you, every time he obeys you, you do nothing but bless him. How could it not be in his own selfish interests to follow you? Because if you allow me to take away some of the blessings that you've put in front of him, he will curse you. He will absolutely turn away. And this is why I'm saying I don't want us to just hear this as the most demonic idea ever. Because you struggle with this all the time. And it's not just we who've entered into middle age and that kind of thing, Right? you know when you're, you're kind of with a kid who starts reasoning their way through life, and when they've been raised in the Lord, this is a question they encounter. And sadly, so many of us have grown up through life not really being willing to deal with the legitimacy of this question. What is the principle that God governs the universe on Is God biblically required, is he ethically required to govern the universe in which we live, the world in which we live, according to the principles of karma? That good things happen to good people. That bad things happen to bad people. And if you violate those rules, then you are broken or the system's broken. That's a legit question to ask. And if we just call it satanic, that what I'm worried about is we don't really engage with the logic of this book. All right? So this adversary, this one, is asking what we're going to consider for the next three weeks. is to be a legitimate question. What is actually going on when things don't seem to square up with the karma principle? One commentator said this. The Satan challenges God's policy of rewarding the righteous by suggesting that it corrupts their motives and proves them to be less righteous. This accusation gives the book an interesting twist. For while we might be inclined, along with Job and his friends, to spend time asking why righteous people suffer, the Satan turns the question upside down and asks why they should prosper. You see the the legitimacy of us having to wrestle with this question now. It's not why to, to, to good peop- bad things happen to good people, but why should good things happen to good people? Are they legitimately good if all they experience is good? In this way, the book gives us the answers we need to a question we rarely think to ask rather than giving us the answers we thought we wanted. So if you've been a little frustrated by how long we're taking to kind of make our way into this book, it's for deliberate reasons. I don't want us getting the wrong first impression of this book and then asking the wrong questions and getting answers that don't make sense to those questions as we proceed through for the next two weeks. We have to ask this. Is it wrong for God to break the rules that we have set up over this world? What kind of a God is allowed to let us serve him and then not reward everything tit for tat the way that we think it should happen? In other words, what is your definition of unfair? And are you sure you're willing to accuse him of being that? Do we have a standard that is in some ways ungodly because it's not God's standard? I think many of us do. I think much of what drives us to sin is because of that. I think much of what drives us to despair and unbelief is because of that. We grow up thinking that God us to work according to our rules. And while Ecclesiastes may have undone that, what we're doing with Job is asking, let's test that out, see how it goes. See, the problem is, it's not like this just happens one time. We read from, uh, from Job chapter 1. Look at the way it continues in Job chapter 2. Because Job goes, or the stone goes and does what he does, right? We're going to get to that here in our third point. But look what happens after that. Again, chapter 2 of the verse 1, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. Do you see just for a moment how kind of thick things feel? It's kind of like, couldn't he have just said, hey, remember what happened before? Happened again doesn't say it that way. He goes through and tells us the same language again so that we feel the same rhythms again. This is a book that's just so self-consciously aware of its rhythms and pace and poetry and it's doing the same thing again. We're reading what happened before and it's happening again. Chapter two, here we go to verse three. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh. He will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand, only spare his life. There's another moment where this happens in scripture, where we have a Satan or Satan kind of coming in a courtroom setting. You might have heard this. We've we've mentioned a few times. It's from the book of Zechariah. It says, then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him, uh, to accuse him of what? We'll find out. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, you rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And if you understand anything about the priesthood, you know, no priest is ever supposed to show up that way before God. This is a a picture of what Israel was like standing before the Lord. The priest was doing the right thing and representing the people to God, but the problem is he's filthy because the people are filthy. And so Satan's accusation is, behold, filth. And he's not wrong. It's not a lie. And that brings a question, what should God do for the filth of people? Just like here, we see Satan acting in another way. He's bringing up what is a legit truth. God, if people only serve you because they get what they want, then they're not really serving you, are they? And so what we're saying is that not only does Job have this blameless and untarnished reputation, not only is he a blameless man, but he now has a foundation for his faith that is rightly being challenged, and it will rightly be challenged across the book. The book is written that way so that we, we dive into this. We have to hear it twice. Can God take away your stuff? Yes. Will you still follow him? It's a good question. Can God take away your health? Yes. Will you still follow him? It's a good question. Those are the questions of Job. And the legitimacy of the questions is worth challenging. But the third thing that happens is then the legacy that we've seen in Job, it just gets ruthlessly dismantled. Let's go back to chapter 1 after that first conversation. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took and struck down the servants to the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Round two. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants to the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, There came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you, intentionally, deliberately written, to make us feel like this is... My gosh, you knocked the guy out with the first punch. He's laying on the canvas. And then you reel back and hit him again. And if you're a fan of MMA, you feel like that's when the ref ought to just jump in and be like, it's okay, we don't beat up unconscious people. But he keeps doing it. He levels him and says, all your oxen and donkeys and the servants are gone. Whoa. That's like all my wealth. Nope, you add more. But the fire of God fell upon and burned up the sheep and the servants. Well, that's like the other half of my wealth. And then the Chaldeans came and took and made a raid of the camels and took them. And and it's like all of everything that he's got. And it's like, well, at least I got my family as he's bleeding out on the canvas. And Satan's like, not one more, baby. And he hits him again and all of his kids are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. I alone have escaped to tell you. I alone have escaped to tell you while he was still speaking, while he was still speaking, while he was, do you feel the rhythm of how ruthless this removal is? And it's as though Job's legacy was built up in his stuff. And the stuff got stripped away. Everything, if you would have said, Job is a righteous and a blameless guy, what would you have pointed to in that day and age? You would have pointed to all of his possessions and his family. And you would have said, those are the markers that God Blesses this person. And if you don't believe that, think about all the interactions that Jesus has with people where he encounters them in their shame. From the very beginning, we meet a relative who's ashamed because she, she has no children. And she's so sad and she's looked down on. Later on, as Jesus grows up, he walks by and there's a man who's blind. And everybody knows he was born blind. And so the debate about that man for days and ages and decades has been, who sinned, him or his parents, that he'd be born blind? What's the assumption? Somebody must have sinned. Why? Bad things happened, so bad stuff must have caused it. And Jesus is like, man, you guys don't understand the economy of this world at all. Did you never read Job? But this is the way everybody thought. Shame comes because you're flawed, and so that's why bad things in, are, happen to your life. So, But the reverse of that is also true. The good things that happen, happen because you're a good person. And so, his legacy has totally been dismantled, right? Well... Not totally, because we have the second round of that conversation. But then Satan goes back out again, and it says, verse 7 of chapter 2, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the soles of his foot to the crown of his head, and he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself when he sat in the ashes. Remember the story of Adam and Eve? Right? Eve doesn't come off real great in that one, does she? She's the one deceived, and she's the one who acts as a little bit of a temptress in the middle of it. And in some ways, the fallenness of Eve is pictured by the role that his wife, or the fallenness of Adam is pictured by and related to the role that his wife has in coming to him and tempting him. And what does Adam do? It it doesn't excuse Adam because Eve has that kind of a role. In fact, it says that when the serpent is having the conversation with Eve, Adam's with her. He was given the role to guard the garden. He was supposed to do it. He was supposed to get out of here, you lying snake. We're going to trust God. Eve, come on, let's go. But he doesn't. He, in his silence, sits there, and then Eve listens. Eve is deceived, and then Eve tempts Adam, right? Listen to that as the backdrop of what happens next. Then, chapter 2, verse 9, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. It's almost as if you're reading, you're like, Satan, you couldn't have taken the wife too? I mean, clearly she's not doing any good right now. She's just acting kind of like Eve in the very beginning, tempting the guy who's supposed to encounter the work of of, of Satan in his life, and he's supposed to be kind of pushing back on it, right? The wife's not really helping. Same exact thing is going on here. So will Job fail like Adam? No, he doesn't. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil? Listen to God's then designation of what happens. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Verse 20, then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now I want to submit this. We have a lot to look at in this book. It's going to take us two more weeks. But I want to submit this that's Job's legacy. Because if Job's legacy is all the good stuff that happens in life, and that's it, and those things can be taken away, then that's kind of discouraging for us, right? Because what it means is our capacity to do good, our capacity to have a righteous legacy, depends on the circumstances of our lives. It depends on what I get, and what God gives, and what God takes away. And if he takes away stuff by the calculus of this world, then I'm not doing well. And if he adds things to me, then by the calculus of this world, I have a righteous legacy. Honestly, isn't this the way you think? If you're just being honest, how do you know God's done good? When you think about all the good stuff that you've got, the good stuff that you've done. You think about your reputation and how you're seen. All of that gets stripped away from Job, and twice what we hear, he did not sin with his lips. He did not sin or charge God with wrong. And if that is the way we need to understand Job's righteous legacy, then you can do that. See, it makes being, like Job said, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. When steadfastness is required on your part, you can live that way. It doesn't matter what God gives or what he takes away. It doesn't matter how you're viewed within the community of God or within your neighborhood or at work. You can follow God even if he's taken away everything you thought was allowing you to follow him in the first place. I I feel like this is a point for us to pray about. Almost at the the end of of the psalm, it says, Lord, search me and know me. See if there be any wayward way within me and lead me in the path everlasting. We have to ask, God, do I believe that righteousness looks like it's presented here in Job? Or do I just think it looks like all the good stuff that I can get and the way other people can view me? But the thing that we have to understand if we're going to move on in this book is the assertion that we've kind of put there in the bulletin. In the quest for a human example of true decency and honor, we meet Job the blameless as an example of what that would be like. And still, even that kind of person can face inexplicable suffering. Hezekiah, remember everything he did? Everything he did for God? Here's the way his story ends. Remember, we read, the Lord was with him wherever he went out, he prospered, he rebelled, he struck down the Philistines. But in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And if you're reading honestly in the book of Kings, at that point you go, God, what are you thinking? He served you faithfully. He rebelled against all the indecency and idolatry before him. What were you thinking, God, to let him be attacked when he served you so faithfully? God does not, it would appear, play by our rules. Or as we said in our assertion in the bulletin, even that kind of person can face inexplicable suffering. You're Christians. So aren't you glad this is true? Because if it were not, you could never read, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Or in Jesus' own words, for this reason my fathers love me, loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. You see the problem with believing what we may come into the book of Job believing is that it is fundamentally anti Christian. Because if Jesus came to do what we know Jesus came to do, which is as a righteous one to suffer for the unrighteous, then you have to accept that that rule we hold to in life is one that God is not required to submit to. And that's hard for us to buy into. So we'll take two more weeks to really kind of dive into it. If you want, I have a reward next week for anyone who comes to church having read all of the book of Job. Not before I just said this. So if you read all of the book of Job in your devotions this morning, it does, Nah, that counts. But before today, so if you were in seminary perhaps or studying Hebrew and read through the book, you don't get my treat for you next week. Oh, you do actually, that's pretty noble. So Mary and, and Michael, they're already there. They've already read the book of Job, probably in Hebrew. But for the rest of us, Read through. See if you recognize your thoughts in the words of Job's friends, and we'll unpack them next week. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this hard lesson, this hard word, because we don't want to accuse you, and we don't want to stand above you, and we don't want to tell you that you don't play by the rules. We want to submit our rules and then let you dismantle them. And I feel like you're starting to do that for us. So Lord, the wisdom that we have learned from Proverbs and from Ecclesiastes, I pray that you would help it to really settle in and be a foundation for us as a wise church when we think about what it really means to follow you and to belong to you. So I ask this, Lord, by your spirit, by his power, would you bring us wisdom from above? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that sermon went long, so I'm not sure how many songs we've got, but we're gonna sing together, so let's stand up. is